Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? We make getting custom window treatments a minor project with major impact. Choose from premium blinds, shades, and shutters. We even have options for your patio, too. Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Our design experts can help you find the perfect window treatments on your schedule. We'll even send free samples directly to you. Plus, we can handle the measuring and installation for you. Unlimited window treatments installed for just one low cost. And with Blinds.com, you'll always get transparent pricing. No hidden fees. Our free shipping and 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step. And into your home, too. Shop Blinds.com right now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off for a limited time at Blinds.com. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. The Crisis Next Door, a weekly report on the biggest conflicts around the world with host Jason Brooks. Thanks for listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks. Syria's civil war has been grinding on for nearly nine years, and once again, it's taking another turn that could further deepen the country's misery. Turkey is threatening military force against Syrian regime forces if Damascus doesn't pull those troops back from the rebel enclave of Idlib by the end of this month. That warning from Turkish President Erdogan came after deadly clashes between Syrian and Turkish forces. Joining the crisis next door to talk about the confrontation is Julian Rupka, political analyst, journalist, and conflict analyst with German newspaper Bild. Julian, thank you for joining the crisis next door. Thank you. Let's back up just a bit. How bad were these clashes between Turkish and Syrian forces? Well, from, from what we know, it was mutual artillery shelling uh, with allegedly the um, Assad side, so the Syrian side, starting the, the, the clashes of the shelling uh, late in the night, killing, as far as I heard, uh, five Turkish soldiers, injuring, oh, sorry, and uh, three civilian contractors and uh, injuring some more. Uh, then there was allegedly, I have to say this because there's no visual or other evidence for this, was uh, Turkly, Turkish response shelling the same night, which uh, according to Turkish uh, state authorities hit, I think, 54 targets and killed more than 70 soldiers. I'm quite doubtful of this number, to be honest. I think the Syrian Observatory for Human Rights reported the number of six Syrian uh, troops killed and um, quite frankly, they are also estimating. So um, I think there there was some serious uh, escalation. We have seen also, of course, the coffins of the of the Turkish soldiers which arrived in Turkey the next morning. So uh, I think this uh, this changed a lot. Although we haven't seen more direct military confrontation uh, since then. Regime forces and their Russian allies have been pushing deep into the province of Idlib capturing at least a couple of dozen towns that were in rebel hands. How is this positioning Damascus for a possible assault from Turkish forces? Well, I think there... The, the, the problem is that uh, we, we had some sort of de-escalation zone there, you know. It started in 2018 or 2017 with the Astana talks, and there were a couple of de-escalation zones throughout Syria. It was Dara, it was uh, East Ghouta, near Damascus, it was... Uh, Homs, uh, and it was also the, the so-called wider de- Idlib de-escalation de-esca- uh, zone with the parts of Hama, uh, Latakia, and Aleppo province in it. Um, if you look at the map today, you see that all the other de-escalation zones disappeared. 
So um, Russia and Iran as well never adhere to the deal. And they, uh, oh, oh, let's put it this way, they, they had an interpretation of the deal saying that terrorists must disappear. Uh, but for them, as we know, everyone is a terrorist. Everyone opposed to the to the Syrian government, to the Syrian regime, is a terrorist. So they uh, drove offensives into all these de-escalation zones, one after another, um, and they disappeared uh, with thousands dead, with at least one larger chemical weapons attack uh, uh, in uh, in Douma, as you might remember, with forty uh, death. And uh, the last de-escalation zone now is Idlib. And um, there are two major differences to the other de-escalation zones. Uh, one is that it's bordering Turkey. So uh, whatever happens in Idlib uh, directly uh, affects Turkey and directly affects also domestic policies and, and the, the pressure, the political pressure on the, on the government. And the other, um, um, the other difference is that the refugees... Uh, the IDPs, also the rebel forces from all the other de-escalation zones, they were sent there uh, in the green buses and other buses, but the green buses are like symbolic for this. Uh, so tens of thousands of rebels and f of civilians which were not ready to live under the regime in the reconquered uh, other de-escalation zones, uh, they all moved to Idlib. And this gives you a real toxic mix there, so to say. So it's not so easy for the regime in Russia uh, like in all the other areas, to just conquer them and then say afterwards, well, <laughs> that was our interpretation of the Astana deal. They didn't adhere to it, so we had to 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 uh, get them back. So right now, what we are seeing is that, or what we saw in 2018, um, the year after the Astana deal was was inked, is that Turkey established these so-called observation points, and they positioned these observation points all around the old limits of the de-escalation zone of Idlib. Um, but then, uh, as you know, first in April last year, uh, Russia, the Syrian regime and uh, Iranian-led militias, they started their assault on Idlib nonetheless. Uh, first, it was the southern part of this Idlib, wider Idlib de-escalation zone, which is uh, called Hama. They conquered this area. Khan Shaikun was an important city there. They besieged the first Turkish army observation post near Morek, one of the cities. And, um, well, then in December, they, they reloaded their guns, if you want to say so. And they, they continued with the offenses, uh, offensive. And right now you have around four to five Turkish observation posts uh, of this initial observation posts already under regime control. So the limits of this deal, which Turkey thought would be permanent, uh, this zone, it, it's absolutely, uh, it, it got much smaller uh, until now. So around 45% of the zone are already conquered by the regime and its allies. And so Turkey is in a sort of desperate situation because it not only has this 1.5 million people already living at its border, but another 1.5 to 2 million people which are fleeing towards the border. Mr. Erdogan recently said that uh, only in the last month, last two months or so, 1 million people arrived to the border. And this is a, this is a, a huge threat for Turkey because these people are pushing to the border, are partly pushing directly into the border gates. We have seen some riots there in the, in the past. So this is a, this is a big, um, this is a big threat to Turkish uh, internal security as well, because as you know, Mr. Erdogan is known to have a pro 
Syrian and pro-refugee stance, while the opposition, especially in Istanbul, they are ruling Istanbul since last year, they are very much anti-refugees and they also say, send these people back to Assad. So, so that's, that's the domestic uh, part of it. So Erdogan obviously worried about his position domestically in this. How worried should Europe be about Erdogan's growing impatience at being the overwhelming leader in hosting Syrian refugees? Hmm. Well, I mean, he's he's threatening these so-called refugee waves uh, for a couple of months now or even years now. Uh, you know, we have since 2015, we have the so-called... Uh, a refugee deal or the Turkey-EU deal, which says uh, you make sure no more refugees are coming to Europe, especially to Greece, and we make sure that they get proper uh, accommodation and we pay for everything you, you're giving them, basically. I think more than 5 billion euros have been paid so far from the European Union to Erdogan. Um, so he's threatening this again and again. However, when we look at the numbers of people and of refugees going really over the Aegeus and coming into the Greek um, the Greek islands and also uh, Bulgaria, so the mainland, these numbers are quite small compared to 2015, 2016. So I don't think there is a real threat of him opening the borders. I think he wants to build uh, pressure on Europe, of course. He wants to have uh, more money. I think that's the most important thing. If you ask, ask Turkish analysts, they will also say, he wants more support, like political support and even military support. Uh, I highly doubt this because Turkey is a member of NATO. And as this, it has the mechanism at its hand, in its hand to, to, to ask for military support from NATO countries, many European countries, and it didn't do so. So I think it's, it's rather about uh, pressuring European Union for maybe political support, maybe saying, okay, what you're doing in the Kurdish areas in the in the northeast of Syria, that's okay. We support you there. We give you even money to to rebuild these areas to resettle refugees. But I think it's not so much about it's not so much about um, military support. Julian, there has been speculation for over a year and a half about Idlib falling to the regime. Yet it's managed to hold on. How strong are the rebel forces? And how much supply has Turkey given as far as heavy weapons in enabling those forces to hang on against uh, the regime forces and their Russian allies? Well, in Idlib, you have two major forces uh, when it comes to rebels. One is Hayat Al-Sham, which is an extremist Islamist group, uh, which is also, as far as I know, labeled as a terrorist group in the European Union. And they have become stronger and stronger over the past years. Uh, they were much weaker in 2016, 2017, for example. Uh, they only controlled like 30% of the region. Now there's talk about them controlling like 80 to 90% of the areas and uh, also also having the, 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 the most men and so in terms of manpower. Um, I would argue that Hayatahi al-Sham, which was Jabhat al-Nusra earlier, they got stronger and stronger because the, the the moderate opposition, the rebels, the different groups, they were let down. Also let down within this Astana negotiations, which created this Idlib de-escalation zone. Uh, because when when Turkey, of course, didn't do this just for fun, they were under immense pressure from from Russia, from other countries, um, to to find a political solution um, to to let Idlib down. And you know. In, in a certain way. So not ignore it and not give it to the regime, but say, um, stop their military support. 
So they did this. They gave less and less weapons to the moderate opposition. The moderate opposition was was run over by uh, Hayat Tahrir al-Sham. They got stronger and stronger. And right now you have the problem that I would say, like, I don't know, 80% of the manpower of the rebels who are in the region is uh, Islamist extremists and some other proxies of Hayat Tahrir al-Sham, which are even more extreme, even more too close to Al-Qaeda and others. Uh, then you have the National Liberation Front, NLF, which is the, if you want so, the Turkish proxy in the region. They have been, as I said, very weak over the, over the past months and years because Turkey was more focusing on the other areas, on Afrin, for example, on Albab area, on the um, northeast with the Talabiyat and other cities which they took over. Um, and there they formed this, um, I think it's Syrian National Army, it's called, And this is um, composed of many of the former groups, which were also active in Idlib and other areas, as I said, in the other de-escalation zones. Many of these people people went to the, and rebels went to the north. So Turkey was sort of boosting them up and arming them and also making them quite a proper army, giving them the weapons they needed while letting down this National Liberation Front in in Idlib. Um, Over the past weeks, we have seen some changes there. There have been new uh, anti-tank guided missiles coming in from the Russian production, also from the U.S. production, so this so-called TAUS. Um, And I think uh, Turkey is now reconsidering its approach. We have seen also rebel convoys coming in from Azaz, from Afrin, from the north into this area because Turkey is slowly realizing that these rebels are absolutely outgunned and they're outnumbered by the regime. Also, Hayat Tahrir al-Sham seems to not have the manpower and not the, the weapons uh, to, to, to defeat, uh, defeat the regime. So um, I think it's quite obvious that, that uh, all rebel forces in these areas are not able to hold any of the towns. They are beaten back. We have seen days where the Assad regime and others have overrun more than 10 Towns. I mean, ten towns in one day. This, this is really unique. This has never been before in the whole war. I would say, um, not when there wasn't any political deal to to hand over these towns. Um, so right now we are in a situation where the rebels have no chance to turn the tide, uh, even though they get more weapons right now, also grab missiles and other stuff from Turkey. So I think the only way right now is for the Turkish army to intervene. And we have seen signs over the past days that this could happen very, uh, very shortly. You're listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks, and we're talking about Turkey's threats against Syria with Julian Rupka, political analyst, journalist and conflict analyst with German newspaper Bild. How much stronger is the regime on the ground today compared to a few years ago? And would Damascus stand a chance without the help of Russia and Iran? Um, it's a good question. I think in 2015, uh, the Syrian Arab army, the, the, the real army of Assad, it collapsed. It, it was it was over. There was no more uh, no more army. You saw this. They were losing Idlib province uh, in a couple of months and many other areas. This was when Russia intervened and said, okay, we support you with uh, lots of weapons, which is, by the way, interesting because this is n- nowhere discussed. Everyone is talking about uh, Qatar and maybe Turkey giving weapons to some 
um, militias or terrorist groups, but no one talks about this massive flow of Russian weapons or, or former Soviet weapons, which is coming to the Assad regime. Also, Russia is supporting the regime with its air force, and I think this is a this is a real lifeline to to the regime. You can see this whenever there's bad weather, rebels are regaining some positions because they they can recapture them because there's no air support from Russia. Um, also, you see that the, the Russian jets are much more modern and they have much more precise weapons, although most times I have to say they're using free fall bombs. So most times they're using the old Soviet stuff from the 17th, from the 70s, 60s uh, to help the regime. But still, even this, this helps. When it comes to Iran, um, there have been different periods. There have been this Aleppo offensive in 2016 where Iran was absolutely decisive. They sent thousands of militiamen um, from the Quds Force, from, from Pakistan, from, from Afghanistan. So they were all put there and they were these so-called <laughs> human waves almost, you know, when, like, like in Iraq, Iran war, they just throw them in, hundreds of them died, but still they won in the end. I think this was reduced a little bit. Uh, I, I don't know why exactly. I think it's a power struggle between Iran and Russia each of them trying to get a more influence over the Assad regime. And I think Russia is winning this battle, um, which is why right now you can see that uh, President Assad, dictator Assad, is nothing but a puppet of, of Russia. He's doing whatever Russia wants him to do. And he's not so much dependent on the, uh, on the Iranians anymore. So I think these two powers still, Iran and especially Russia, they're, they're, they're giving Assad what he needs to maintain in power and also... Um, his his army is, if you want to, so his new army because it's it's probably paid by Russia. There are different uh, corps in the army which are which are um, hired, so to say, from Tatars and from Latakia, which are very very strong militias, which are much stronger than the regular army of of Assad. They are all helping now on the ground, and these so-called Tiger forces, for example, um, which are very effective and and which. Uh, you could argue will would probably not not listen to to Assad anymore once this fight is over against uh, rebels. So then they want their debate. They want what they were promised. And otherwise, this could even be a, be a big problem for Assad after the war. I read reports that Russia launched at least 700 airstrikes in just January of this year, uh, targets all around Syria, but also several hospital strikes. Does this kind of indiscriminate bombing tend to support the rebels and, and help in their recruitment to fight the regime and the regime's allies? Yes, I mean uh, it has been Russia's uh, strategy from the from the very first day um, that they are targeting civilian infrastructure. They are also targeting rebels sometimes, but you have to admit that their bombs, as I said, they're using mostly fifty-year-old bombs from the Soviet areas, eras. Um, they are very odd and they are not very precise. So what you can hit with them is, is buildings, big buildings, is residential areas, and they have this very easy but also very evil strategy that they say if no one is able to live in this area anymore also rebels uh, cannot live there anymore so they're targeting the families they're targeting the the houses they're targeting all the relatives of, of the rebels and every hospital they find you, you know that all these information was given to the united nations about the hospital locations and russia used this information and then bombed all the hospitals um, so yes, I mean, it's a, it's a very malice, but also very effective strategy, I would say. You can see in Marat Anuman and other areas, 
uh, Khan Shaikun, big cities which formerly had like 30,000, 50,000 inhabitants, there's no one left when the Assad regime is coming, which is quite different from, from earlier off offensives in Homs or in Dara, where they said, uh, even the Russians said, ah, come on, it's reconciliation. We, we, we get these towns back into the motherland and so on. They absolutely stopped this approach. In Idlib, um, Russia and the Assad regime are both saying we don't want any civilians in these areas anymore once we capture them. Because, as I said, these people don't like Assad. They hate Assad. They were driven away from, driven out from other areas in, in Syria. And uh, I think that's, I mean, this is perfection of this, of this strategy. In, in the South, for example, they had to take care a little bit. And they had these humanitarian corridors. Remember this. The Russian propaganda, the state TV was uh, standing there and filming the people getting out of the humanitarian corridors. I haven't seen them filming anyone there in Idlib. There was some talk about this at one point or some point. Yes, we have these corridors, but a day later or two days later, they said, okay, no one's coming there. So, so fine. So, so this strategy uh, of Scorched Earth is, is perfectly working for them and it's a humanitarian disaster uh, for the civilian population. A recent crisis next to our podcast focused on Turkey's foray into Libya with Erdogan threatening force against the rebel group led by Field Marshal Haftar against the UN-backed government in Tripoli, while Egypt and other Arab states back mm -hmm. Haftar. Turkey also roiling Greece, Cyprus and Israel with oil exploration plans in the eastern Mediterranean. Is Erdogan biting off more than he can chew? Is there the potential for him to lead Turkey into a quagmire somewhere in North Africa or the Levant? Yes, uh, I would agree to this. I think Mr. Erdogan is overstretching the, the powers and the, the possibilities of his military, which is one reason why he is sending Syrian uh, mercenaries to, uh, to Libya, for example. Uh, of course, there's some Turkish hardware going down there, but there are also between 500 and 1,000 Syrians already fighting for Tripoli right now. Um, but I agree that Mr. Erdogan being active, active with his military uh, around Cyprus for the safeguarding his uh, oil exploration in Northern Africa and Libya. In Iraq, you may not forget this, there's a PKK, so he's, he's continuing to, to operate there. The t Turkish Air Force is operating, their drones are there every day. And then you have the north of Syria with um, uh, Jarabulus and other areas where the Turkish military is still important to maintain security or stability there because YPG is always near this Kurdish militia. And then you have Idlib, of course. And in Idlib, you have seen hundreds and hundreds of Turkish armored vehicles, tanks, self-propelled artillery and other stuff coming in or flowing into the past days. And in the beginning, you said there's an ultimatum until the end of February. That's true. But there's another ultimatum to uh, to free the observation points, the, the four or five captured or besieged observation points. And this um, deadline, this uh, ultimatum, ends tomorrow. So uh, while I'm still skeptical that Turkish army will, will really launch a military operation, because this has to be a massive military operation, do not just capture these areas, but also after that after the hold these areas. It's, it's partly 50 kilometers, which they have to advance from the now front line to, to where the observation posts are besieged. Um, so uh, I, I would say while this is still very uncertain, um, there must be a reason why he's sending hundreds of tanks and other vehicles to this area. So it seems like the next major 
crisis or it is a major crisis in, in, in humanitarian terms, of course, but the next major battle will be uh, between the Turkish army and the Syrian army. And, and the big question is, of course, what will Russia do with its mighty efforts in the area? It seems like a tragic game of chicken underway uh, between the Russians and the Turks with the Syrians in between. Julian, thank you very much for joining us here on The Crisis Next Door. Thank you. Thank you. We've been talking with Julian Rupka, political analyst, journalist and conflict analyst with German newspaper Bild. Thanks for listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks. Till next time. The Crisis Next Door with host Jason Brooks is produced weekly. If you have any thoughts for Jason, email him at tcndpodcast at kcbsradio.com. Again, that's tcndpodcast at kcbsradio.com. (sighs) Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? We make getting custom window treatments a minor project with major impact. Choose from premium blinds, shades, and shutters. We even have options for your patio, too. Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Our design experts can help you find the perfect window treatments on your schedule. We'll even send free samples directly to you. Plus, we can handle the measuring and installation for you. Unlimited window treatments installed for just one low cost. And with Blinds.com, you'll always get transparent pricing. No hidden fees. Our free shipping and 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step. And into your home, too. Shop Blinds.com right now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off for a limited time at Blinds.com. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply.